0: Good morning, guys. Happy Resurrection Day. I'm glad you guys are here. Thank you. Thank you for making the time out of your day to be able to come and join us and be with us. My name is Brian, one of the pastors at Calvary Slow, and I'm I'm stoked to be able to celebrate Jesus' resurrection and what that all entails with you guys today. I got a quick little story, and then I'll just jump right in. Typically, this is a little bit of a backstory. Maybe you do, or maybe you don 't know this, but for the most part for churches or for pastors, um, Easter Sunday, resurrection celebration, whatever name you want to attribute to it, uh, the idea is it 's all about Jesus is kind of the Super Bowl of The church here. It is like the big event that you spend a lot of time thinking about, preparing, and praying. I mean, uh, really at the end of the day, which is kind of ironic, the message is almost always the same. No matter what church you go to throughout the world on this day, it's typically about Jesus rising again from the dead, conquering death, and all that entails... So, I typically spend time preparing and thinking uh, months ahead of time as to what I'm going to be speaking on and sharing with you guys. Uh, This past week, this normally, um, rarely, if if ever, has happened, uh, my wife uh, and I were talking and she says, hey, just something for you to think about, and I don't know why, but I feel like I want to say this to you, and um, I'm like, okay, I'm bracing for the worst, and then she just goes, um, she goes, y- you should consider, like, just telling the story of Jesus and the resurrection and what that is, and I'm like, okay, thanks, I'll, I'll, I'll think about that, but I've been praying and thinking about this for, for months, but I'll, I'll, I'll think about that, and so, um She'll be delighted to know that I'm, I actually took her advice, and that's what I'm going to be talking about here today, is just simply the story. And so if this goes well, uh, you can thank my wife and thank Jesus, uh, and if it doesn't go so well, um, I'll, I'll take all the blame. Um, But I want to talk a little bit today about the story of Jesus. And what I want to do is I actually not so much myself want to talk and let the story. I want to kind of be a a mediator, one that just simply reads the story to you. And I want to allow one of the gospel writers to be the one to tell you the story of Jesus. Jesus, the king, the king that brings this upside down kingdom that was uh, portrayed for us in that wonderful video. So if you guys have your Bibles, why don't you open up real quick? to the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have Bibles, we do have uh, the scripture that will be up on the screen. I want to read a series of scriptures all the way going to the very end of the Gospel of Mark. And really, today I want to talk about how the resurrection connects us with this large concept that we oftentimes wrestle with and really, for the most part, even find elusive in our world. It's a subject of hope. It's a subject that maybe some of you right now, uh, you wish you had hope and you are painfully aware of the fact that you do not have hope because you're in a life, locked in a system, uh, found yourself mastered by addictions, and you may look at your life and feel as if it is hopeless, hopelessness. Uh, We have a hopelessness uh, problem within our culture and society. It's one of the Number one reasons why for the most part and all sorts of sociological studies have been done to verify this. Why there is such a massive amount of drugs that are issued every single year just to help counteract the results of anxiety and fear and really hopelessness. And the ironic thing is that the gospel actually speaks to us about the subject of hope and how that is directly tied to the subject of the resurrection. So I want to begin this morning by really reading a story of Jesus throughout the gospel of Mark. We'll take a look at a handful of different verses. I'll read them. I'll make my comments really brief and then we'll conclude. I'm going to begin this morning by looking at Mark chapter 8 verses 27 through 33. I'll just read it. You can listen along. It starts like this, and Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others said Elijah, others said you are one of the prophets, then he asked them specifically, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he's strictly charged him not to tell anyone. Now, the word Christ, uh, before I go any further, uh, is one of five interchangeable and uh, closely linked words that are used throughout the entire gospel narrative of Mark. And they all basically mean the same thing. Uh, We see words like Messiah, words like Christ, or Son of God, Son of Man, or the King of the Jews. Each one of those five titles Mark uses interchangeably, and it's all tapping into this long history or narrative throughout Israel's long distant past, which God made these promises. And as the video pointed out, that one of the promises was that God would send somebody to undo, really in short, the mess that this world is in. Now God made the promises to to Israel, Israel's story really, and again, I don't really have time to go into the depth of the storyline, but Israel's story really is humanity's story, which really in short is your story and my story. So God makes his promise that one day he will send a king, a Messiah, the son of God, the son of man. Uh, To come and to bring order, to bring about a reordering from chaos to organization, from death to life, from destruction to wholeness, from defilement to purity. This is what God's claim is. I'm just simply relaying to you what God has simply claimed. Whether or not you believe that claim or not is a whole another entire reality that my hope is that you would find the story compelling enough to actually enter into this story and let it then begin to define or redefine you. But this is the claim. Then Jesus asks his friends, his disciples, who do you say that I am? And then they say, you are the Christ. And then Jesus basically says, spot on. You are absolutely correct in this observation. Verse 31, he goes on and he says, and he began to teach them. Now, this is really important to note. This is one of three distinctive uh, actions on Jesus' behalf to teach about the fact that he would one day suffer and die, be buried, and rise again from the dead. This is the first of three in and throughout the Gospel of Mark. And in this context, Jesus then begins to tell them, okay, great, you got the whole Christ thing correct. I am the king. I am the one that has come to reorder that which is broken, to bring life to that which is dead, to save or rescue Israel, and even beyond that, the whole world from their sins. Then Jesus goes on to add sort of an addendum to his discussion. Then he says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, there's another one of those titles, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, make note, after three days he will rise again. In verse 32, so the story gets interesting, it says, And he said this plainly. Now, if you know anything about Jesus, if you ever read anything about Jesus, you know there are many occasions in which Jesus does not speak plainly. He speaks oftentimes in riddles or parables or, uh, or, or, or metaphors. Uh, this is a common way. But right here, Mark tells us really clearly that Jesus is speaking without metaphor, without parable, without symbolism. It's just simple, straight up face value info. I'm going to die. I'll be buried. Third day. I'll rise again. It says, and then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And he called on him uh, in the crowd and his disciples. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So on and so forth. But the point that we see here is that Peter rebukes Jesus. He just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand why Jesus would begin to talk about his death and burial and then whatever rising from the dead meant. Uh, Peter rebukes him, but then Jesus rebukes Peter as the story goes. Jump ahead to the gospel of Mark chapter 9. Take a look at a verse there in verse 30. It says this. This is the second of which Jesus portrays or predicts, if you would, uh, this really strange twist of uh, scene at the end of his life. And then he says, and they went from there, and he passed through Galilee, which is where he did much of his ministry. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, here it goes, number two, the Son of Man, another title, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will, ready for it? Kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying because they were afraid to ask him. That word, Afraid is a word that actually appears many times throughout the Gospel of Mark. It's a word, and we actually get our English word phobia from, or phobia, uh, the idea of just being afraid of having sort of this paralyzing anxiety that cripples us from our ability to be able to think or function or move or uh, just really enter into all that humanity is all about. So here's the disciples wrestling with, struggling with this concept of fear and it cripples them. And the story again just continues on. Skip ahead to the book of Mark chapter 10. Just one more chapter again. Chapter 10 verse 32. And again third time it says this. And they went on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. So there's that word fear again. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was about to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. It's really clear. Three times. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the King, the Lord, whatever title you want to attribute to him, Mark uses five. The message is always the same. They still didn't get it. Skip ahead to towards the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 15. At verse 17. So brace yourself. We've got a bunch of scriptures we're going to read now. Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 17, starts like this. This is Jesus' trial. He's already been arrested. He's been accused. Uh, he's been tried. And really, for the most part, has been found guilty, which is kind of a shocking irony in and of itself. But I don't have time to go into all of the backstory with that. But we're just simply told in verse 16. I'll pick it up right there. And then the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is called the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole... Battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, which uh, purple was the color of royalty. So again, obviously, this is this is all mockery going on right here. So imagine Jesus, the Messiah, the King. Again, Mark wants us to gather this concept in no uncertain terms that Jesus has a role, a function, if you would, within or a vocation within this world. His vocation is king. (laughs) He is king. And kings do one thing, they bring a kingdom. But Jesus' kingdom is vastly different than a kingdom that Caesar brings or the type of kingdom that you or I would type, that we would bring or the type of kingdom that Trump will bring or the type of kingdom that Sanders will bring or Clinton will bring or any other king on this planet. Jesus' kingdom is a radically, profoundly different kingdom. We're going to see that. So these guys catch it. And yet they make a mockery out of his kingship by making this purple robe, clothing him in it. And it says, And then twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, saying, Hail, here's the phrase, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in front of him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloth and they put on his own clothes and they led him out to crucify him. Skip on down to verse 25. And it was about the third hour, and they crucified him. This is a really significant statement. Mark wants us to know. He makes notation to the time frame. This is important because in first century Judaism, there was a time in which the afternoon sacrifices were made. Guess what time that was? It was this exact time. Mark's audience that would have somewhat been familiar with Judaism and would have been familiar with the fact that sacrifices were being offered at this time. They would have made this correlation between two things happening at the same time. On one hand, the evening sacrifice or afternoon sacrifice is being offered. At the same time, simultaneously, the Son of God is being crucified. Then it goes on to say, and then the transcription inscription of his charge against him read, here's what they accuse him of, king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers. That word robbers is actually not the best translation of the word. In fact, many... Scholars, theologians would note that this particular word could also be translated brigand or, in other words, uh, an insurrectionist. In other words, this is not just some guy that did petty theft, stole a CD or two from the local record store. This was actually, or piracy, this was actually an insurrectionist. This was, these were two guys that, for the most part, rallied together groups of people or groupings of people to come and stand against Caesar himself, And here they are being crucified, Jesus in the middle. And then it goes on to say, verse 27, And when they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left, and those who passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests and scribes mocked him, To one another saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, notice the phrase again, the king of Israel... Come down now from the cross, and we may see and believe, and those who crucified with him also reviled him. So Mark gives us this menu of people, groupings of people that are actually mocking him. one, the soldiers are mocking him, two, we see passerbys mocking him, three, we see the religious elite mocking him, thirdly, fourthly, we just see just this random hodgepodge of people mocking him this is mark 's attempt to say the whole world stood there in derision against the christ where would you and i be on that day that's mark's way of saying we would be right there with him we would be mocking the king of all kings the creator of all things mark goes on to say skip on down about verse 37 and jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion stood by facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this is man is the son of God. Now again, the phrase son of God has significant meaning. It is uh, unilaterally connected to all other four statements of Jesus. The idea is that he is king. Now the word son of God would have had a double meaning within the mindset of a first century. On the one hand, the word son of god would have had these deep roots connected to the ancient hebrew scriptures that associate jesus as being king but also the phrase son of god was also a very common phrase within uh, greek or i should say in roman culture and civilization because on the coinage we know this cuz excavations have uh, uncovered this type of stuff but on the coins of ancient rome on the one side you would have an image or inscription of caesar's head or bust and on the other side you would have a phrase that would read something in, you know, the language of the day that would say something to the fact, this is Caesar, the son of God. In other words, royalty, supreme royalty. And here it's shocking because the only one in the story up until this point, really that truly gets it, aside from Peter that still is having some issues as to what it really means to be the king of all kings, the centurion says, truly this is the son of God. We're also told that the veil of the temple Torn. Now, the veil of the temple was sort of this really extremely thick curtain. Um, Maybe you do or don't know, but right behind this big screen is a really large curtain. It's not a thick curtain, but it's really large. It's all stitched together. So imagine a curtain really, really large that in Jerusalem, in the center of Jerusalem, was a temple. And this temple was sort of the center of all the hopes of the people of Israel, It was the place where, for the most part, God lived. In fact, you can even make an argument and say that, for the most part, every Jew believed that it was within the temple, God's very presence, or another word for that is the word Shekinah, God's Shekinah presence, or Shekinah, presence of God, dwelled. Another way to think of it is heaven, literally, was there in the midst of the temple. Heaven and earth collided or overlapped right there, right in the temple, and Mark tells us this really strange miracle. The veil that separated the holy of holies where God's shekinah dwelt, where God's very presence, where heaven existed, that veil tears from the top to the bottom, uh, basically clarifying the fact that it wasn't someone from the bottom making a mistake. Imagine being the priest on uh, duty that day, and somehow you fail and you tear the veil. That's, that's really bad for job security. And he sure tells us that that's not what happens. That somehow this veil tears from the bottom or from the top to the bottom, indicating indicating the fact that somehow God now has gone public. His presence is no longer relegated to a little spot in the middle of a little nation on a little plot of land that God's very presence, God's healing presence, God's redemptive presence, God's saving, rescuing, loving presence now has gone throughout all the earth. There is no veil that separates us from God any longer. The writer of Hebrews speaks about this type of idea that now we can go boldly into the throne room of grace. It's a throne room of judgment, it's a throne room of grace where God gives you something you don't deserve because his great love and his action of what he did for us there through Jesus on the cross. But as we go on, as we finish up this little idea, in the very last verse of the chapter, in verse 46, I'll read this. And then Joseph, we're introduced to him a little bit earlier in the story, which I didn't read. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, he uh, brings this linen shroud and taking him down, Jesus, the body, he wraps him in the linen shroud and he laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw there uh, where he was laid. And so we're introduced to these two ladies. They've part of the story early on, but we're just simply told that they know exactly where Jesus was laid. Now we're introduced into the beginning of chapter 16, I'm done. It says in verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, or Salome, brought spices uh, so they might go to anoint him. And very early, uh, let me, before I jump into that and read that, one thing I want to state before I move any further, is up until this point, what we're basically told is something really important. We're basically told that Jesus has set the stage. He's been very clear as to what they can expect... In no uncertain terms, Mark tells us that. He adds that little tagline on at least two occasions that Jesus speaks plainly. The idea is that he's not speaking cryptically. But Jesus has been really clear. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again a third day. And again, it's not just ambiguous. He's going to rise someday. He's going to rise the third day. So you would expect that in chapter 16, this community of Jesus' followers would all be Waiting and longing uh, on tiptoes, waiting for the third day because just like Jesus promised, he's going to rise again from the dead. But that's not what we see happening. Before we go any further, one thing I want to say is these women that are part of the story is they, they were expecting death. Now, I want to jump back in and finish with some thoughts. It says in verse 2, it says, And on the very early of the, next, or the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went out to the tomb. And when they were saying to one another, Who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone that had been rolled away. And it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw the young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And they said to them, all right, he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He was risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but then go tell the disciples that, and Peter that he was going before you to Galilee, there you will see him, just as he told you, and they went out, and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said to, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid, I want to stop right there, so what we see about these women, is that four things, one, they were alarmed, they were trembling, they were astonished, and there's our word again, they were filled with fear, when in reality, they should have been filled with expectancy, celebration, and hope. I want to pause real quick and just say one thing real quick because there's a backstory to this that I think is really important for us to understand. Um First century Judaism had sort of a two-stage belief of how the world was going. On the one hand, they had this belief that they lived in what was called the present age. It was a present age that was filled with war and suffering and brokenness and lying and deceitfulness and hurt and dog-eat-dog and war and all of these things that basically, for the most part, we find ourselves steeped in on a regular basis every single day. But The second stage they believed was aside from the present age, they believed in what was called the age to come. And this was not just some sort of a random hope. This was a hope that was rooted within the history of the scriptures that basically God promised there's going to come a day when the Messiah comes. And the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and they will take their uh, swords, and they'll turn them into plowshares. In other words, rather plowshares, rather than investing money and billions of dollars into war machines, they will reallocate that money towards agriculture, and growing tomatoes, and helping society, and building schools, and making sure that there are hospitals, and ensuring that there are ways in which people who are illiterate can then learn how to read and do the stuff that the rest of society does. That's that money will be reallocated towards all of that. And this was called the idea or the hope of the coming age to come. And somewhere in the distant future would be this, it would be all that coming age would basically be initiated by this hope of resurrection. So the concept of resurrection was not foreign to the Jewish people. They believed in this. Ezekiel talks about this. The book of Daniel speaks of a future resurrection. So the idea of resurrection was a common theme within that mindset of first century Judaism. But the hope was, was that God one day would resurrect all people. Both the living and the dead. The just and the unjust. The way that Daniel says. So in their mind, they had this expectation that this bridge to the two different ages from the present age to the age to come would be bridged by resurrection for all people then the end of the age or the age to come. That would dovetail into the age to come. What we see here is something radically different because they had no categories to somehow place the idea of one man being resurrected not at the end of the age, but in the middle of what seems to be the age they didn't know how to categorize this. They didn't know how to place this. And this is exactly what God does. Jesus is not dead. He's alive. They didn't know how to put this. They didn't know how to how to think about this. And this is one of the reasons why later in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul would describe Jesus as the first fruits. The idea is that the first fruits this is an agricultural type term that when you see the very first blade of grass or the very first grain of fruit or vegetable or whatever. I'm not, used, you can tell, I'm not an agricultural guy, but if I'm probably botching the terminology, but you get the idea. The very first thing indicated what type of crop you would end up having. And that's why they would look at Jesus and say, Jesus is the first fruits of all that's to come. In other words, we can look at Jesus and know that how things went with Jesus will be the way in which all things will go for all those who follow Jesus. So what they recognize is that Jesus' resurrection literally... In their mindset, drag the future into the present. in other words, what God had promised in the future is now being brought into the very moment in which they 're living that forgiveness. Is made available right now. God's life is made available right now. God's wholeness is made available right now. Not someday in the distant future. Yes, there is still room for a distant future. That one day God will break on the scene. We call that the second coming of Jesus. But until that time, the resurrection of Jesus literally is a game changer. It changes everything. And this is how the early church would have seen this. So, in short... What we understand about the resurrection of Jesus and in closing is that if God can raise a dead body out of the grave, think of what he can do with a dead relationship or a dead heart or one that's marked by cynicism. This is how the early church saw this, that if God can resurrect a dead body out of a grave, think of what God can do with all of the other vast areas of deadness throughout Our lives, dead relationships between husband and a wife, between a mother and her children, between parents, between friends, between former church friends. Think of what God can do. That's where we live. That's where they saw themselves as living. That somehow God was bringing the future To bear upon the now that life is made available now that God is birthing, bringing forth newness of life into this whole world now. Literally, heaven and earth are coming together, overlapping. God is bringing healing to where there was once nothing but death and things dying. This is what we see. Guys, Jesus is risen from the dead. Life is available. And what that means for us, in a very simple way, is in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, I'll finish with this, is that there's this passage that's really powerful, Paul, in kind of working out the theological implications. In other words, what does it really truly mean for us who live in a world of brokenness? What does this mean for you and I, if God's alive? So what? Because for some of you, you guys are living your lives, and you're just like, so what? I gotta deal with life. I gotta pay my bills. I gotta get a job. I gotta deal with a griping landlord. I gotta deal with a griping spouse. I gotta deal with all of these things. Or maybe you're struggling with addiction or you're finding yourself in a hopeless state. The way that the early first century Christians would have been working this out is in Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says this The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in who? You. Paul's writing to people that have professed faith, confidence in God. That rather than just simply living according to the default mode of their heart, they're basically saying we trust Jesus. And Paul's saying that the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, he lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will also give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living in you. Guys, brothers and sisters, listen to this. What this means is that the same power, life-giving ruach, breath, spirit, however word you want to use to describe it, breath of God that raised Christ from the dead, is that if you are in Christ, your follower of Jesus is inside you. That means that nothing is impossible for God in your life today. That there's no addiction that's big enough, no addiction to sex, drugs, porn. Your cell phone is big enough To somehow overcome the grace, the power of God to help us, to bring life to us. No matter what type of relationship, no matter how soiled it's been, or how broken it's become, or what types of angst has arisen in the midst of it, is big enough to overcome God's power to help you. So what is our big holdup in moving forward in healing? It is the same. Stone. That confronted the disciples. We're slow of heart to believe. Three times. Jesus clearly says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'll be handed over. I will die. I'll be buried. But I'll rise again on the third day. Three times. Again, remember Mark says it's plain, it's clear. But still, on the day of that morning, on the third day, nobody had expectancy because belief was eclipsed by unbelief. At the end of the day, it boils down to do we trust God? Is He trustworthy? Today's a little bit of a celebration for me. It was two years ago today that I had just come off of two months of not being able to talk. Uh, I had a surgery on my throat. Some of you guys know that. And I thought that I may have had cancer on my throat, and they needed to remove whatever thing that was on there to biopsy it and check it out and figure out what's going on. Uh, The backstory of that was it was the most frightening terrifying uh anxiety stricken i've ever been in my life um i i I, by nature can be prone to anxiety but in that moment uh, this season was one of great if i have cancer what does that mean for like like what i do uh, does, that, does that mean I won't ever talk again? If I won't ever talk again, it also pretty much means I won't have a job. Um, if I don't have a job, it's, it's, you know I've got to figure out alternative ways to provide for myself, for my family. And all these anxieties and questions kept going through my mind. Not only that, I was kind of like, I actually, I actually like what I do. So, I mean, the money part, whatever, I don't really care about that. You know, God providing for me through that. I don't, I don't really care. Like, I love doing what I do. I love being able to speak the good news of Jesus but it was in this season I I, I had to like keep wrestling and there was occasions after occasion which God would bring me back to this one final question of do you trust me do you believe me so so what if I take away your voice so what if you no longer are able to pastor church is that your identity is that who you are because if it is if it goes when it goes you go with it But if your identity is one in which I have breathed life into you and you belong to me, if that thing dies, that hope dies, that job dies, that ministry dies, that church thing dies, if your hope is in me, you won't die. But if your hope is in it, you'll die with it. But the big issue is do I trust God? do I trust the one that raised his son from the dead to also give life into all other parts of my existence? But the same question you have to wrestle with. I shared the story with you. I just repeated what Mark said. It's how he saw it. It's his version of the account. It's beautiful, my opinion. For many of you, I'm sure it's beautiful as well. My hope is, is that if you're here this morning and you find yourself wrestling with who God is, if you find yourself in the midst of anxiety and stress and worry and pain and unrest, that what you would hear today is we have a God that calls us to rest, to hope. Now, hope is... Really important thing to understand before I finish is this idea that we oftentimes think of hope in our modern day culture and context as just extreme wishful thinking, right? For some of you, like, I hope dinner will be prepared for me when I come home, right? And it's like wishful thinking, right? Um, and that's kind of led a lot of us to kind of delineate three different types of hope. Some of us are like, well, I'm, I'm an I'm optimist. You know, you are like the ceaseless, good mood type of a person. Um, there are those of you that are like, non i pessimist always everything bad is going to happen. Some of you are just like, I'm a realist, which in reality is nothing more than a pessimist in denial. Um, The fact of the matter is, what God calls us to is not optimism, not pessimism, not realism, but hope. Hope is this confidence that's rooted in this God. That though Christ Suffered and died on our behalf and was buried in the grave. According to the scriptures, he rose the third day. This is the same God that is alive right now, today, breathing his presence into your life to give you power to overcome sinful proclivities and habits and addictions and anger and anxiety. And bitterness and cynicism and brokenness and relationships and deadness between husband and wife. Do you believe them? The gospel is not just simply about proclaiming. It is a proclamation, but it's also an invitation. I said this on Good Friday, I'm done. I got the worship of him, come on I'm up. And that's 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 my way of like saying to you, I'm, i really am done this time. Um, Christianity oftentimes has the emblem of Christianity is, is a cross. And I think rightly so, and that's that's a whole other sociological study in and of itself, which is fascinating. How did this you know death um, emblem become sort of this emblem that's, that's worn around our necks, or modern day terms, you know, on your teacup or whatever? How, how is that possible? It's a death emblem, but I, th- I think probably one of the a better emblem to use to define what Christianity is is, is a table. It's a table in which God invites us to come and feed, come and partake. And what's amazing about a table is, or I should say this table that Jesus offers, is he says, whoever you are, come broken, addicted, full of anger, vengeance, rage is controlling you. You are mastered by debt. You are mastered by anxiety. You are mastered by porn addiction. You are mastered by drugs. You are mastered by fears. Come. Come. Eat of me and you'll live. Partake of me and you'll find life. Because though I was dead, I'm alive. And the same spirit of God that raised me from the dead is alive in you because I breathe them into you as I'm alive you're alive so this is an invitation to to not just simply come and believe Jesus though it is that it is also an invitation to believe what God has already proclaimed about you to be true let's all stand and let's all respond